You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything, Everything. available everywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome to Monsters Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. This week's episode of Monster Talk has an explicit tag due to sexual content. It's not Ken bleeping fetter level of explicit, but if you have any little monster talkers around, I thought I should forewarn you. Oh, and speaking of Ken Bleeping Fetter, his book on the 50 archaeological sites you used to see for yourself, titled Ancient America, is now out in print. I haven't got my own copy yet. In fact, he just told me about it a few hours ago. But if you've enjoyed his other work, I suspect this book will be really great. Monster Dog. Few places on Earth are so visible yet so mysterious as the sea. As a species, we've wandered all over the surface of the Earth, establishing footholds in every nook and cranny. Yet there, just out of reach for most of us, lies a vast expanse of unexplored mystery which is teeming with life of an astonishing variety. Stories of monsters and wonders washing up from the sea go back thousands of years. It's only since the advent of writing that we've been able to reliably collect such stories and start to evaluate whether they represent real animals or mere fanciful invention. Today, We're going to talk about such tales as this and whether or not science can identify likely known creatures that correspond with these descriptions. Be sure and check out the show notes at monstertalk.org for links to the papers from our guest today, Dr. Charles Paxton. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland. It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Dog. Well, I hope this episode finds you well. It's been an interesting month for me. This is recorded November 2016 at the tail end of the month, and I had set myself some hard goals. 
I did well on both, but didn't finish either for a variety of reasons, but I did make progress. I didn't finish my draft for my book on technology, but I got a lot of work done, and I'm hoping to make more progress as fast as I can. I finally got out and started running again, but I haven't hit my goal of 5K yet. Still working on that, but I did get up to two miles in a very respectable time for my age and my fitness level. So in both cases, I'm getting there, and I don't like to miss deadlines, but I also don't accomplish much without them, says the man editing his show an hour before it's supposed to be uploaded. Well, as I say, I'm running late, so let's get on to the Monster Talk. Uh, Today, we're welcoming Dr. Charles Paxton, who is a marine biologist and statistician and who's done a lot of work, uh, an interesting work, in fact, on research into sea monster stories. He's a research fellow at the University of St. Andrews School of Mathematics and Statistics, and he is also an ignoble award-winning researcher from his work on ostriches. Uh, yeah, that's 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 all correct. Yes. Excellent. Okay. I actually, I'm a little envious. I, I my I've never thought about getting a Nobel Prize, but I've thought pretty hard about how it would feel to get an ignoble one. There's, there's actually a, a funny story about that because when I was first contacted by the chap who runs it. Um, I actually thought it was for my monster work. I didn't even cross my mind it was for the ostrich work. Yeah, the, the ostrich work, uh, the title, if you don't mind me reading this, is, is Courtship Behavior of Ostriches Towards Humans Under Farming Conditions in Britain, which <laughs> it's the courtship behavior of ostriches towards humans. That's the part that I find interesting. So I bet that's what they found interesting, too. Uh, but I swear, when we wrote it, we thought this was just that this was a problem associated with um, farming in the UK. It, the humorous aspect of it did not cross our minds at all. It oh, was only science. later that we, we actually kind of <laughs> realized the, the implications of the title. Mm. How does it turn well, out? <laughs> well, it was, there was a fad in the late 1990s in the UK for ostrich farming. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we haven't really got the temperature for it, I think. But one of the issues was that many of the animals they weren't reproducing and the farmers didn't think there was a problem because every time they went down to the fields they saw the animals engaging in courtship behavior but we suspected that the issue was that they were engaging courtship behavior uh, because they'd been imprinted on human beings so basically they were engaging courtship behavior when humans were around but they weren't engaging courtship behavior um, with other ostriches, it was purely ah. a kind of human mediated thing, and we we just basically collected data that quantified that this effect was actually happening. We had only one well-adjusted male ostrich, as I recall, and he was one who'd been brought up, I think, in a zoo with other ostriches, and all the rest were misdirecting their sexual behaviour. Wow! <laughs> but again, we didn't. Th- we just did it. It was dry as dust when we did it. We didn't. The the, fun, the kind of funny side of it didn't really occur to us. It was just a problem we were trying to document. So you, you <laughs> had to go around and put up posters with the picture of farmers that said "farmers, they're not that into you." That sort of thing. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but it was a bit voyeuristic because um, we basically we recorded their behaviour while standing next to the pen and then looking at their pen at a distance with binoculars, which again. <laughs> In retrospect, <laughs> other people might have found quite amusing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> have you done any work into emus as well? No, no. It was purely, purely ostriches in 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 the UK. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm kind of like flightless birds. They're kind of interesting. Um, hmm. Done some work on penguins, though, but that's the only other flightless bird. And surprisingly, they find you interesting too. Mm. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> It's going to be a big jump 
to start talking about sea monsters. Well, yeah. it is. So we're actually having you on today to talk about your use of statistical analysis uh, in how you've brought it to bear on mysterious animal sightings, um, which I think I think it has an interesting parallel. So the premise of our show, I, I like to think, is that we use monster stories to make science more interesting. Um, or maybe you've used monsters to make statistical analysis more interesting. Is that fair? Oh, uh, no, 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 no. I, I'm Wrong. far more interested in monsters than, 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 than statistics. Um, yeah. so, so my, my interest, my interest, yeah, started from a interest in monsters and it just so happened that I do quite a lot of statistics in my proper work. And I applied this to answering in- interesting questions about, well, I suppose what you could call marine cryptozoology. So my, sure. my interest for a very long time, I felt that there were kind of some interesting questions that could be investigated in marine cryptozoology by apl- just kind of thinking a bit laterally and applying uh, statistical approaches to look at them. And that's kind of what I've been doing. But my interest really has always been in the, in, in the actual marine cryptozoology and trying to solve the problems of that rather than using it I mean, it's great, and I have used it as a way of illustrating um, and kind of doing interaction, public engagement with the public about statistics, and it works really well for that. But my interest has really been in the actual, the science of the marine cryptozoology. And has this been your academic work, or it's more personal research? Oh, yeah. Any taxpayers listening don't need to worry. It's all been, uh, it's all hobby type <laughs> stuff. It's all privately funded by Big Monster. We all know yeah. where yeah. <laughs> What kinds of monster stories most appeal to you then as a researcher? I mean, you've covered that a little bit already. Uh, Yeah. No, my interest is mainly in aquatic monster stories and mainly marine ones, although recently I've been doing a bit of work on on Loch Ness. Um, And it it, it comes from a kind of um, young boy interest in – uh, in sea monsters when i was a kid i was always kind of fascinated by giant squids and and twenty thousand leagues under the sea and all, all of that kind of thing and um and and, and it was just kind of it was in the late 1990s um when i was finishing off my phd that i suddenly thought hey well actually let's think back on that and maybe we can do some interesting science kind of asking some some of the questions i'd always been a bit dissatisfied with the um approaches that i'd seen being used and i thought that there were new new ways of new ways of doing things and that's what i've kind of been doing since yeah since the late 1990s well if if you have a history of uh, interest in the field and it must have been quite exciting to get to co-write a paper with adrian shine yeah that was kind of that was kind of cool actually um so the, there's some other work i'm doing with adrian as well so the, the, yeah it's it's quite fun to kind of meet up with people i mean adrian i'd heard about before i kind of met him um although funnily when he f- first contacted me it was actually a question about fish behavior because that was my kind of that was what i did my phd on and then we started talking i mean he knew i was kind of interested in this kind of stuff sure. but, but that was that was the initial reason he contacted me but yeah but that's quite quite fun um i Many years ago, I attended a meeting of the old International Society of Cryptozoology. So I actually met some of the kind of famous cryptozoologists of the time, um, like Hoovelmans and, and people like that. Wow. Um, but I was just a, a young undergraduate then. And um, yeah, but that was quite fun, actually. I, I did, um, yeah, that was, that was kind of cool. It is cool. Just in, and most of our listeners would know Adrian Shine, but uh, he's uh, 
the longtime Nessie researcher, he's become, I, I don't know if he was always skeptical, but he always took a scientific approach. And, and late, lately he became more famous as a famous Nessie skeptic. But he's the guy with the long beard. You will have seen him uh, in many uh, documentaries about Loch Ness. That narrows it down. Uh, he has a, 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 like a Gandalfian beard. It's, yeah, it's a very impressive beard. It is a super impressive beard. So. It would take me weeks to grow that. <laughs> Let's talk about sea monks. Let's just start off with that one. So can you give us a little bit of a background on what is a sea monk? What's this legendary animal? And then we'll talk about what you did with that research okay well um sort of partially starting the middle of the history of sea monks the the most famous sea monk is a strange animal that was washed up well appeared we're not quite sure how it was found in 1546 off the coast of denmark it was presented to the king of denmark um and then uh he said he ordered it to be buried lest it produce foolish talk. I'm not quite clear what the foolish talk was that he thought it would cause. And then drawings of it were propagated across Europe, um, eventually apparently making their way all the way to the court of the Kingdom of Navarre and maybe even to the court of the Holy Roman Emperor. And they all expressed an interest in it. And later on, in fact, um, Mary Queen of Scots, Mary Stuart, while she was in um, house arrest in um in england she actually embroidered a sea monk um so <laughs> lots of kings and queens of the renaissance took a great deal of interest in in this sea monk um but there were other there were earlier sea monks whose connection with the renaissance sea monk i'm not wholly clear about but there was a sea monk that was reported in some medieval literature which was again like a, a merman who was like a sea monk but this was a cannibalistic creature which tempted people um, into the water and then um, consume them. Um, and that's how come it's called a sea monk. What? <laughs> um, I love some of those illustrations. No, 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 no. no, no. That, that, why are they called sea monks? I guess is a better way to put that. <laughs> well, I think it's just because they they look like monks. Did do um, they? I mean, I, yeah, I, I, that was the, the picture. The illustrations the, did. Yes. So the, the face of a monk. They'd be a yeah, very that curious. Specifically looking. says the face of a monk. You know, I found that really an odd thing to say. Now, in the sea monk from 1546, it talks about almost like what do they call it? Tonsured hair. Like the, it's got the circle yep. of short hair around the crown of the head. Uh, it, it's a very strange description with with mm. the head of a monk, and then the body sounds like it was armored or scaled. Had almost it sounded like hair on the top, and 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 uh, let, let's talk about the way you approached that research because I like the way uh, you did sort of a collection of uh, of literature, and then also looked at the features that were common in the descriptions. Can you talk about that a little bit? Uh, so. We've got various different descriptions of the sea monk and various different drawings of the sea monk. And what I and my colleague uh, Robert Holland did was uh, look at those descriptions and then compare the descriptions kind of point by point with potential kind of suspect animals to draw up parallels to try and work out which of the suspect animals it might possibly have been. If, if, if it, if it had a single source, which it might not have done, might it, it might have been mm. some sort of chimeric type animal, um, but but assuming it had a single source, um, that 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 was kind of our approach, and we kind of looked at the different features and then compared them, 
um, and tried to evaluate which which of which of the sources it was. We can't produce a definitive answer because we can't go back in time and and fully test and, and, and fully investigate what was there. So it's 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 conjecture, but hopefully it's kind of evidence based conjecture. So what do you think people were seeing then, if it was one creature? Um, I yeah, if you you force me, I, I'd say I, I think it probably isn't. It was an angel shark, um, okay. which is even today in both Norwegian and in England uh, and the UK called monkfish, one of two species of fish which are called monkfish, um, and it has certain parallels with the sea monk. It's not a perfect. Um, uh, you can't perfectly make it replicate a sea monk. Yeah, it doesn't um, have the face of a monk. <laughs> it, it doesn't have the face of the monk, but maybe it kind of does if you if you turn it upside down. And it's also possible, and I've grown more open to this idea than I than I than I was at the time when I wrote wrote the original paper that it might have been actually some sort of gaffed dried sea monk that had been manipulated by someone. Mm. Um. Yeah, yeah uh, it, what's often called a Jenny Hanover. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and then there's, you know, we've talked about gaffs before uh, mm-hmm. on the show a couple of times, but uh, we talked about the uh, uh, Fiji mermaid uh, is yep. a good example. And where where the, the you talked about that just now, talking about chimera. You, you, I don't think you were suggesting that it might have been a creature that was a chimera. You're saying that maybe they had sewn together parts, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so... Um, it is it is fascinating because um, I think uh, there's a tendency of uh, anybody I don't know if there's a name for this probably is a name for it but to imagine that whatever's going on right now well this is the height of modernity and nobody would be as sophisticated as to come up with these sort of hoaxes and plots and things in the past right. but they did so <laughs> in fact history's well, full of it so yeah I mean we know, we know that the people were producing um, kind of dragons from skates in the renaissance period because those are actually illustrated in some of the kind of comrade gesner's history animalium and these sorts of books so we we know we know that was definitely that that sort of thing was definitely going on so it's not implausible that this sort of thing was going on um and i know with regard to another renaissance uh sea animal um a kind of fantastic sea animal the, the bishop fish um i think there was something very similar going on. I've got a paper, which I'm just finishing, which kind of um, where I think, in fact, we can identify the, the bishop fish to actually one particular species. Um, but it's one particular species that's been manipulated by people. And I don't want to say anything more about that, but that's, that's a paper that will be submitted in the very near future. Neat. Okay. That was going to be our next question to ask about the bishop fish. Can you tell us anything about it then? Well, it's, it's a, a fish that looks like a bishop. Um, <laughs> um, uh, which was meant to well, it's a bit strange. It would, uh, either there were two bishop fishes, or there was one, and, it, and the, there was some sort of typographical error. But maybe in fourteen twenty, or maybe in fifteen twenty one, um, a bishop fish apparently alive was shown to the king of Poland, and then kind of returned to the sea. But um, I'm trying to trace back a, that a little bit more. Does, the, um, does it have a, a special hat, or is it only able to move diagonally? It, what? <laughs> it had a mitre. It, it it had a kind of yeah look had a mitre. Nice. Um, and so it was a it was a it was a, it was a, it was a proper bishop. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, and um, again, 
one of these strange things that came from the sea. But I think I think I've got this one nailed. I think I can identify it down to species. Well, let um, us know when you get your paper out. We'll. Uh, yeah, sure, sure. Link to it. Or um, whatever. That's quite. That's quite interesting. That's an interesting little story. Um, there's no. There's no real belief. Sometimes the bishop fish and the sea monk get confused, but there's no real reason to believe the, the two are connected. They just. They're just kind of part of a kind of series of kind of. Um, marine people that kind of turn up religious fish <laughs> yes well, so this is a kind of oh sorry no no you go ahead go ahead Over. this is a sideline question that you mightn't really be able to answer but it just seems like around that period in the, the middle ages that uh, a lot of kings and uh, noble people were very interested in novelties uh, do you know why that was the case um yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure about the medieval period, but it's certainly into the Renaissance, then that definitely is the case. I mean, there's a lovely painting by of Elizabeth I wearing this fantastic dress, which she's no longer got, which is covered in actual pictures of sea monsters. Mm. Uh, and and she was embroidering sea monsters as well. And, and that, that embroidery still can be seen at Oxburg Hall in um, Norfolk in, in, in England. Um, so, yes, Certainly, they were taking an interest in in these sort of, these this sort of weirdness. I don't know whether that's just because it's the Renaissance and um, people are becoming more educated and they're more literate, right. and so they're consuming lots and lots of books, and so they're just taking an interest in this kind of thing. But um, mm-hmm. yes, yeah, it, it does appear that for whatever reasons that these um, uh, uh, Renaissance monarchs are taking an interest in strange, weird animals. Well, they, they it just it, it kind of goes in waves. That's uh... <laughs> boo. <laughs> yeah, it just seems like they were uh, a lot of them were collecting strange objects and uh, even people, and then just showing them around and displaying them proudly. <laughs> well, yeah, we well we get this development a bit later, don't we? Of these um, cabinets of wonder and, and mm-hmm. Kunstkammer, I think that my, my German may be wrong there, but. Um, and so there are these collections of them, and they're in fact they're in fact a sea monk does turn up in one of those um, slightly later turns up in one of those um, cabinets of curiosities. Okay, um, oh, so fascinating. I, I, well, this interest in things washing up on the shore, though that that's still going on. I, I was thinking when I was reading your sea monk paper that that in many ways um, it seemed like the sea monk was kind of like the Montauk monster of the 1500s. In that it's it's this mysterious thing, the story's going around, people are drawing pictures of it and sharing them. You know, they don't have photography yet, but if they had, I'm sure this would have been the sort of uh, equivalent of a, a viral campaign to, like, talk about this mystery, right? Or that's the way it seemed to me, maybe... Yes, uh, I, th- I think that's that. Yeah, that definitely could be the case. There might have been something else going on with regard to the sea monk and also the bishop fish in that... And I'm not 100. I'm not. This isn't clear in my mind yet. But it, there might have been theological implications, and I can't quite work out whether the people seeing the sea monk were just saying, were just whether they genuinely thought this was an analog of a monk in the sea, or whether they just thought it was an amusing kind of coincidence that there was this animal from the sea that looked like a monk. <laughs> because of course, if if there actually was a monk from the sea then this would have quite important theological implications for for the period of the Reformation, because that yes. might imply that monks, and which are a bit Catholic, not always Catholic, but a bit Catholic, um, 
are the natural order of things under the sea, which might imply that Catholicism is a natural order of things under the sea, which that might worry a Protestant monarch. <laughs> it might. But no, it is fascinating because um, I think uh, the sort of theological implications are more severe in a, in a time when people uh, more frequently uh, were harmed because of their religious beliefs. So mm-hmm. uh, this sort of blending of scientific inquiry into religious questions, I mean, that's still going on today. I think things have shifted quite a bit in how those uh, mysteries are interpreted, but, but it still happens. I mean, it, it's still a question of can we look at uh, the natural world and make conclusions about the universe from what we see in these tiny little segments, right? So it, 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 these questions are the same. The people may have more sophisticated tools to do the analysis now, but uh, those mysteries are out there, and the, and the human curiosity hasn't changed. So it's fascinating. Yeah, are there any other examples of uh, fish or sea creatures like these two, the bishop fish and the sea monk, or they're just unique? Uh, well, I mean, people. I mean, people have been reporting mermen and mermaids. Um, there are also there are one or two. Um, I'm trying to collect them together. There's one or two reports of what you could describe as sea giants as well. So people kind of reporting giant humanoids um, in the sea. Um, these haven't really been very documented very much, but there are one or two of these sorts of records. Okay. Um, and. I mean, if they're if if the witness is sincere, it's um it's quite difficult to actually work out what the hell they're reporting if it has a natural kind of origin. Um, huh. When you say a, sea giants, like, are we talking like Bigfoot size, or are we talking like uh, Godzilla sized? I mean, how how big are we talking? Uh, well, size yeah, size estimation. That's always that. These are things are big. They're not human size. They're bigger, bigger than kind of human size. So yeah. there's kind of reports of people. Yeah. So not I, nothing, not nothing quite as big as Godzilla. But I, I was thinking kind <laughs> of kind of medium whale size, maybe from yeah. from the, um, Wow. Hmm. And these are more recent sightings. Yeah. There, there's ones sort of off the coast of California and um, one or two from other places as well, where people kind of claim, yeah, they've seen like big big humanoids it's Mm. it's yeah it's um it's an interesting it's an interesting one um i haven't really got any ideas about it because they're just the reports are just so bizarre that you kind of think there's nothing kind of you know sometimes you see a report and you just think i can i can see a a zoological solution to this one and sometimes you get a report and you just think I haven't. If the witness isn't sincere, I haven't a clue. Well, right. And we, as you probably drive. know, we, we run into that question all the time on this show, and it, within the field of cryptozoology, if that is a legitimate field of study, and I, I, I kind of think it is. Uh, the uh, the question of there's the what were people really seeing, and then there the flip side of that coin, I guess, is were they really seeing anything? And do we have any way of telling the difference? Because, you know, one of the things we talk about a lot is, and have done a lot of research on is how that sort of reality is constructed in the mind of the viewer. And so it's not always easy to pick out exactly what's happening externally, what's happening internally. That's not to mean that they're making things up or confabulating, but people see weird things when there's not necessarily a single thing there or anything there, you know? So, Mm. 
Uh, and then 10 people see an odd thing and they are going to have 10 different descriptions of what they saw. It's, it's really, right. really interesting. But you, well, you, we, your research actually goes into this. Uh, you, yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I've looked into this. I mean, um, so, so I'm, yeah, so part of my research has been to try and understand eyewitness reports. And I take a different view from uh, many people who hold a skeptical position. I would describe myself as holding a skeptical position. But um, I think the, the skeptical mantra of the plural of anecdotes is not data can actually that isn't true and you can use anecdotes but if you use anecdotes you've got to be very very careful and the problem with using anecdotes well there's two two major problems with using anecdotes one is of course they might not be true and the other uh, other issue is that they might be biased relative to the population that you're trying to draw conclusions about but if you can if you set up your the question you're asking in such a way that the data you're collecting is unbiased relative to the hypothesis you're looking at, then you can use eyewitness testimony, anecdotes uh, as data. And what, what do I mean by that? Well, if you use reports of monsters to tell you, um, so samples of reports of monsters to tell you about the population of reports of monsters, then that's a perfectly, then collecting Reports is a perfectly legitimate thing to do. If you want to use reports of monsters to tell you about monsters, which is kind of the next step, that's a far more uh, that's a far, that's a far greater extrapolation. Which your your data may not your your anecdotal data may not be able to really do that. So I've been using I've been collecting reports of sea monsters, bringing them together as a kind of statistical database to then try and investigate. Um, the reporting process associated with uh, sea monsters. And you can do things like um, where there have been multiple reports of the same event, you can compare the witnesses to each other, try and work out how consistent witnesses are. Now, you can't say how accurate witnesses are because you don't know what truth is. You don't know what they actually saw. But you can compare them with each other and ask the question, well, are the witnesses consistent? Uh, and so you can you can do you can do all these sorts of interesting questions, which allow it do give us insights into the way in which um, witnesses might be thinking about what they've seen. So is there any particular way that you can differentiate between good and bad anecdotal evidence or reports? <laughs> oh, that's, that's an interesting question because it, it depends on what you mean by, by good and bad. Now, for me, there isn't really... Well, true or false, bad. I guess. <laughs> well, well, there's reports with a lot of information and there's reports with a little information. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you can't, and you can you can use that, and it's very difficult. It's very difficult to make any conclusions about a specific report to say, oh, this report is false and this report is true. But you can look at patterns in the reports and see if certain um, you could could, for example, um, see if certain reports from certain uh, c- certain sources have certain features which are different to all other sources. Okay. And this is something I'm working on at the moment, uh, especially with regard to uh, Loch Ness reports, where it does appear that um, there are fluctuations in time with what people are reporting from Loch Ness. Okay. Uh, 
and, and the, I won't say any more about that at the moment, but <laughs> that's that's what that's what we're, that, that's what so, we're finding out. So, for listeners okay. who aren't picking up on this, these 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 gaps uh, in information are, are, I think they represent uh, a potential future paper, not a lack of uh, comfortableness with talking about the topic. Is that accurate, Bruce? Oh, absolutely! Yes, 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 completely. Yeah, no, we're they're, they're, we're we're just completing a a big paper, which is a statistical analysis of historical Loch Ness monster sightings over the past eighty five years, where we're looking into looking at these patterns. Nice. Wow. <sighs> yeah, it's going to be the definitive kind of statistical analysis of of of, of the Loch Ness phenomena. I think. Okay, we'll have to have you back on the show. Yeah. All right. Talk about- the the uh, use in your papers, you, you do a, uh, a lot of grid-based comparisons to talk about what features are evident in various life forms compared to the descriptions. Um, can you talk about that sort of approach? I, I really like that. It reminded me of sort of doing a, a, a detective story or trying to figure out, you know, Mr. Green had a, a bag and, you know, Mr. Red, did, you know, that kind of thing. But it, it was uh, to... to I, I don't... I assume you didn't come up with that, but where where did you pick up on this approach, and and how has that come to play on your papers? Um, I'm just trying to think, actually. Uh, yeah, no. I, well, it just seemed a natural natural way of natural way of doing it. So we had these different. Um, we have we have these. So in the case of the sea monk, for example, we have these different um, suspects for what the sea monk might actually be. And I, I just thought, well, the only way to really kind of work this all out is just to tabulate the whole thing and then cross-reference it mm-hmm. and then and then kind of pick and see out where the difference differences are. And I think originally we probably created the table for our own benefit, but then we thought, well, why not stick the table in the paper because it's probably easier to tabulate everything rather than... Um, oh, no, it's great. It's, 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 a really nice, uh, it's a really nice visual way to look at the information and kind of see where the best matches are. Yeah, just uh, a little bit more on this. Uh, you had a paper that was all about uh, examining this eyewitness accuracy. Uh, would you like to talk a little bit more about that? I, I, I think, again, we, we've typically talked about, um, I guess, more of why I don't necessarily, as a skeptic, trust eyewitness testimony. But I also am thinking in terms of, uh, you know, when people have sort of uh, expectations. Like, for example, I think of the Gulf Breeze UFO sightings. There's a few other places where there's been these sort of spates of UFOs. And you get all these people out looking at the sky, specifically looking for UFOs. And when they see something unusual in the sky, they're already inclined to attribute it to UFOs. And I don't know... Uh, when you have people on a ship, uh, I'm thinking here like of the Daedalus uh, sighting, or there, there's various places where you would have people, oh, look, someone says, a sea monster, and then now all this little cluster of people are watching something, and it, it changes their, I guess, their approach. But you've sort of stepped aside from that and looked at other aspects of the, of the, of the collection of this kind of information. And you're talking about single observers versus multiples, can can you just uh, briefly uh, talk about what you found when you looked into that? Uh, okay, so as part of my kind of statistical approach to looking at this problem, I've been I, I looked at two particular. Well, uh, it was myself and Adrian Shine. We looked at two particular cases, which is the situation where you've got uh, the same witness gives two accounts of the same event, mm-hmm. and so you've got perhaps they they gave the the first response within a few days of seeing the monster and 
subsequent response maybe it was a few years later or or something like that or maybe they gave they were interviewed by one reporter and they're interviewed by a different reporter so that's one situation where you've got the same observer and the same encounter so you can compare their that sighting to themselves kind of thing and you've also got the situation where you've got multiple witnesses of the same event and again you can compare uh the the different reports there now we know these witnesses have not been placed in separate isolated booths once they've seen the monsters. So there's a chance of them talking to each other. So already that could increase the similarity between, um, between witnesses. So this gives us a kind of, um, upper, upper, uh, sort of bounded upper, upper estimate of what the total similarity is, uh, of, of the total consistency of witnesses or at least what the consistency of witnesses would be if they were wholly independent of each other. Um, and I thought this was quite important because it's often, uh, in the, especially in the skeptical literature, uh, people kind of assume things about witnesses and they, they're quite reasonable things to assume about witnesses. But I'm a, as a scientist, I, I, I feel we, we should go a bit further. It's, it's no good to just say, well, yes, we don't think eyewitness testimony is very good. I think we should kind of test it and find out in what ways is it good, in what way is it bad. Um, and really explore that. And by compiling these accounts together, this allows us to take a statistical approach to kind of look at this and then really see if there are actually kind of interesting patterns in the data. And I was quite surprised, actually. I thought that witnesses would be really inconsistent and uh, and, and all this kind of thing. And so they were surprisingly consistent, which mm. I really was a bit of a surprise to me because I was, you know, my kind of theoretical framework is one of where witnesses are, you know, we don't think of witnesses being very good. And, and, and this is only the first hurdle. There's lots more hurdles a, a, an eyewitness of a monster account has to go through. But the, just in this first hurdle of consistency, I was pleasantly surprised at how consistent witnesses actually are. They're not perfect. You know, one person can say one time they saw the monster and it was 200 yards away. And the next time they report the same event, the monster suddenly doubled in distance further away or it's changed its size or whatever. Um, but normally they're they're pretty consistent, um, which yeah I was surprised about. America, we are endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights: life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling. You impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy. UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audio book. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at Chinwag Pod and Wagon. 
Do you get many witnesses who have documented their experiences and what they've seen? They've written in diaries or they've just kept blogs oh, or yeah. accounts? Well, we've, got, we've got lots of reports. I've got over 4,000 reports now in my database. Um, that's 4,000 reports. Now, obviously, a single event can generate multiple reports from multiple witnesses or the same witness. Right giving different accounts but um so we've, we've got a lot of we've got a lot of eye, eyewitness testimony um it comes from a variety of different sources sometimes it's memoirs sometimes it's diaries most often it's interviews with the press um oh and that's something else we can do see now we've got this database so we can explore questions like um how reliable are first-hand accounts compared to second-hand accounts okay. um now again Perhaps most skeptics would assume that second-hand reports are less reliable than first-hand reports. Um, but as a good scientist, again, I feel we should test it. And where it's been tested, it does appear that's actually the case. Um, also, I've tested whether anonymous reports are less um, – well, uh, uh, are anonymous reports more exaggerated than non-anonymous reports? And again, there appears to be a hint in the data that's actually true. Now, again, this kind of – you might expect that, but – You've got to test it. You know, we're scientists. We've we got to test these things. We can't just assume them, even mm -hmm. if they, they fit with our prejudices. We, we, we've got to kind of actually test them. Absolutely. Um, so that's that's what I'm kind of doing. Um, so I, I'm very interested in that and, and in the use of statistics and mathematical models. Um, so... But, but some of what you're doing is also going back and looking at historical claims... Um, where there's not as much evidence. So when you're approaching something uh, that took place several hundred years ago, what, how, does you, how do you even start when you have a story that's, uh, well, what was that thing they saw in 1700 in something? You know, how, how does that kind of research, if, if I was a, an amateur academic say, well, I am an amateur academic, <laughs> but much more amateur than academic, I'm afraid. Uh, so I, I, how, how do you approach that kind of research? Where, where do you yeah, start? That's a, that's a good question. So so really, you're right. There's kind of two approaches. I, I really have these two kind of separate approaches. And one of them is to take the, the entirety of reports and kind of make statistical conclusions about these massive big databases of data. And then my other approach has been to zoom in on particular reports that I happen to find quirky and interesting and kind of look at those in, in, in more detail. Um, and, and yeah, and those are kind of, they're, kind of the, the the two different kind of intellectual approaches um yeah because on the one hand you're taking a kind of abductive looking at the individual evidence and then reaching a conclusion from it and that, that's that that kind of and the other approach is perhaps more in, inductive rather than abductive where you're kind of drawing together all this data and then um making making conclusions from it um so in, in the in, in in the case of these individual reports, then it's a matter of you know. Typically, I'll I'll I'll, I'll read some report that interests me, and I think, oh, this is kind of quirky and interesting. And then I'll go away and I'll look at if there's other versions of the same event have been reported, um, like, like in the case of the sea monk, um, like in the case of that the the sea serpent seen by Hans Egged off the coast of Greenland in the 18th century, and then compare the different sources. And then think about what uh, the features of those different sources and then think about if I think there's kind of zoological origin to it and then compare it to kind of plausible um, zoological sources. 
of course, there, there could be other issues going on. There could be sociological issues going on in terms of what the witnesses have reported and what the witnesses haven't reported and what they've been influenced by and things like this. But in, in that sense, I, I'm quite a narrow cryptozoologist because my major interest is um, what's the kind of underlying zoology behind the reports rather than um, kind of wider soci- sociological issues. Not that I think they aren't important, but that's to an extent is beyond my beyond my area of expertise. I mean, I'm by training a zoologist. Okay. Uh, and uh, so you were talking about quirky and interesting reports uh, being of, of interest to you, and uh, presumably that would include the sea monk and the bishop fish. What are some of the other strange and quirky reports that you've encountered? Uh, yeah, the sea monk and the bishop fish. Um, I, yeah, I kind of liked the Hans Egged story because that was kind of a weird little quirky story. I'm very interested in eyewitness accounts because we have kind of got them. Uh, of the kraken now that's not eyewitness accounts of giant squid that's eyewitness accounts where people explicitly said they'd seen a kraken uh, i'm kind of interested in those so if there's any kind of quirky uh these sea giant reports all these slightly quirky uh kind of sea monster reports they they they're the they're the sorts of things that kind of kind of interest me in, in terms of doing the specific analysis but i'm also interested in this kind of big generalities as well well so i think uh, no, first of all, you said Kraken, not Kraken. And, and oh, I'm I'm really sloppy. No, I think Krak Kraken is or yeah. Um, is I'm not really a, yeah. I'm not trying to correct you by any stretch. I just was wondering if there were uh, is that a British thing or if there's yeah, that's you know. just me being British. Yes, I yeah. I, 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 I don't heard both. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's the right pronunciation. I think you need a Norwegian to give you the really precise. I bet uh, Kraken or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> but but the original legends were not about a giant squid. They, they were about something much bigger, right? And so my, my understanding is that these were like the sort of island-sized creatures that, that live beneath the sea, almost like Leviathan, if you will. Is that what you've found as well, the original Kraken legends or Kraken legends? Well, the, the, first, the first use of the word Kraken it comes from the early 17th century. And there it's used to describe an animal which is basically the medieval island fish. So this is the idea of a a marine animal so large that people kind of land on it and they mistake it for an island. And after a while, for whatever reason, the animal decides to sink and it drags all the poor unfortunates who've landed on it down to the bottom of the sea. Except for one lucky uh, survivor. (laughs) <laughs> yeah well, that's that's a strange case with all these things right because because who's reported it if everybody is, is drowned but maybe mm-hmm. somebody did yeah. and we know and so and we actually can we can there's a direct entomological link because hans egged um in the first description of the word kraken in english he actually says it's analogous to the term hafgufa which is used in iceland and hafgufa is the term that was used in a medieval book called the speculum regale with regard to the island fish. So we can definitely link the kraken to the island fish. There's, there's no doubt about that. And at this point, whilst uh, um, it's not squiddy, it's kind of, it's basically, it's a big island. Now, sometimes they talk about it, there's appendages on it and all this kind of thing, but that the real appendage story doesn't really start happening until the 18th century. And then by the end of the 18th century, then it starts to become a bit more squid-like. But even, I mean, people often think that the kraken as described by Ponto Pippadan, who is this um, Norwegian clergyman who talked a lot about the Kraken. But Ponto Pippadan wasn't sure about what the Kraken was. And he, 
and he does speculate he he reckons it was like a giant brittle star um so even in the middle of the 18th century the the kraken wasn't a giant squid so it it, it, it became associated with a giant squid in the in the 19th century but then even then there's a there's a kind of mistake which people make in assuming that there's a for many monsters there's a one-on-one relationship between a particular monster and um a particular species and i've kind of referred to this as kind of like the dungeons and dragons monster manual fallacy because in 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 dungeons and dragons they have the monster manual and every single monster has specific statistics and is very distinct and of course real monsters they're not like that at all they're kind of really amorphous and different people people don't use consistent terminology and, and things like this so for example during the sea serpent um events that happened in 1817 off the off the coast of new england um some people refer to that as there's a sea serpent or norway kraken so obviously they're using the word kraken then as a kind of generic for sea monsters more generally and we also have other descriptions of the kraken um uh from uh canada where people are kind of talking about what you might think in other contexts be a kind of giant polar bear so it's it's a these terms don't have a, a specific necessarily have a specific narrow narrow meaning they do now but they didn't necessarily in in the past and i think all researchers um should be aware of that i think some researchers forget it that's why we get lots and lots of these kind of compilations of encyclopedias of of monsters and stuff which i think is a bit kind of mistaken that's um because then these concepts are, are far more woolly woolly than that they are, but that's true. I mean, even in our lifetime, the we, we've talked on the show about Chupacabra originally was a humanoid monster that, that uh, sucked the blood from goats, but it looked like a little gray alien with uh, like a ridge of scales on its back. And, uh, and uh, it, it was very distinctly an alien type creature. Uh, and I mean that in the extraterrestrial sort of way. And then in the past 10 years, it sort of changed into uh, any sort of mangy, strange-looking dog. And, and it's the word's the same, but for some mysterious reason, which I can't quite clear up, it's just suddenly become any sort of uh, South Central uh, America odd-looking animal is now suddenly a chupacabra. It's weird. Yeah, monster evolution. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, things change, and, and I, I've often posited that, that there's no truer democratic thing than language. I mean, it changes based entirely on the popularity of usage, right? So, uh, but you're right. But, yeah, yeah. yeah no, I hadn't really thought of that, but I think you're quite right. Yeah, the trigger breaker would be would be an example of that, of, um, the, the, yeah, that sort of drift drift in time. Yeah, so, it's, a, it's a linguistic drift, right, instead of genetic drift. That's <laughs> So, uh, Charles, do you think that there's any link between those early Kraken sightings and, um, for example, what people have been seeing in California of late, those recent sightings you were talking about? Um, you were talking well, about a very large creature. And- yeah, the, these these humanoid ones, they definitely say this thing's got a face. Now, no one ever said that the Kraken had a face. The, the Kraken was this kind okay. of silent-like thing. Uh, so this is kind of... Uh, yeah, so this is this is something more humanoid okay. in the very loosest sort of sense. And so, so I, I don't 
they may have a common common connection. It could be m- many sea monsters kind of connected with each other in, in lots of kind of different ways, but um, mm-hmm. there's no no direct direct link as far as I'm aware. Okay, I'm open to the evidence. But, well, you, in your actual so in in the paper that you shared with us, you talked about the. Just why so I'm going to keep saying cracking out of habit, not out of trying to disagree with you. Uh, <laughs> the, but you talk about the Kraken in return, in, in reference to its uh, relate current relationship with uh, giant squid, and you talked about uh, Architeuthis, um and its uh, potential maximum size. Uh, so, oh yeah, that, I thought that was really interesting because. Uh, I'm already very fascinated by giant squid. Um, I, I think uh, whether they're you know called kraken or not, they they are one of the real monsters of the deep in in their appearance, in their cleverness, uh, and but uh, not much is known about them. Even now, not much. Is, I mean, no, nor we've probably learned more about them in the past fifteen years uh, than I guess probably the past hundred before that. Right? I mean, it's it's there's been a lot of stuff uh, coming out about them, but. Um, what, what can you tell us about the size of these creatures? Um, how big do they get? Well, this is a fun topic and it brings, brings in some real kind of fundamentals, um, about kind of skepticism as well. So, um, various, uh, Kiwi, um, toythologists, if that's the right term, have been saying that they thought that many of the older accounts of giant squid were, um, which suggested that they grew up to kind of 55, 57 foot um, total length were um, kind of exaggerations or kind of um, distortions of what actually occurred, partially because um, they'd surveyed quite a lot of um, giant squid um, from New Zealand and none of them had reached over a slightly more modest, modest lengths. Uh, now I'm a statistician, of course, so I don't believe for a moment, as a statistician, that we've, uh, as we've only seen about 450 or so giant squid, we, we, um, of a population size of at least several, or at least 100,000, um, the chances that we've seen the largest giant squid are pretty negligible, um, and so I, I, I'd always thought that this story that was coming out from New Zealand was probably. Um, being overly overly cautious and i understand in some ways that's the most eyewitness evidence is obviously the most compelling evidence of all and eyewitness measured evidence is the most compelling evidence of all but also as a statistician though we we we, you know we we will engage periodically in extrapolation now extrapolation is of course rather dangerous far more dangerous than interpolation is but nevertheless it's reasonable to assume that we haven't seen the biggest squid and so i was interested in the relationships of various different squid measurements like the body size known as the mantle the so-called mantle length versus the um total length which is the um length from the tip of the body all the way to the tip of the longest tentacles and just looking at the variation that's seen in the specimens that we've got and if you look at the variation that's seen there seems good reason to think that um bearing in mind the the variation we see around the kind of uh, mean relationship at smaller sizes the larger sizes um there should be quite quite a large variation in size and that means there is the opportunity for some giant squid to be found which really are quite large indeed and i reckon they could easily reach uh, 20 meters in total length and that's quite a lot bigger than 
the more recent opinion has been um, has been amongst um, uh, toythologists. But it's it's kind of in keeping with what they were reporting from the tail end of the nineteenth century, where they were saying that they were getting these fifty-seven foot long um, specimens. So I, I don't think it's um, an unreasonable an unreasonable um, opinion and uh, i have uh, offered anybody who wants to to bet with me within the next 10 years there will be physical evidence of longer squid uh, of of the size that i reckon uh, i will happily bet someone a bottle of crake and rum which seems to be a suitable um yeah. uh, beverage um that, that this is the case <laughs> 10 years you say oh uh, yeah i reckon within 10 years there will be a squid at least in excess, uh, uh, at least in excess of fifteen meters. So there'd be, and with a mantle length, a mantle of mantle length two point seven five meters or something like that, and there'll be good evidence for that. So uh, what's that in American? What? <laughs> uh, uh, 65, 65, 66 feet. Sixty six feet. Well, I, I would publicly take that bet. Would you? That'd be brilliant. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. Do you want to take that bet? But so you don't think, as a, as as a, as a skeptic, you don't think that a a large squid of well, let's 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 make it let's make it really precise so we, we, there's no ambiguity here. Excellent, this is excellent. Good. Um, so um, let's say so so I'll I'll say that um, a squid of greater than fifteen meters, easily fifteen meters total length. Um, I'm prepared to go higher actually. Uh, will be found within the next ten years, and, and I think not. Okay, and, and do you want to do it for body? Because the most well, that's the thing. We we, we will the, the we'll have to probably do it based on estimation from the mantle size, right? There's a isn't there a is there a fairly yeah. reliable correlation between mantle size yeah. and tentacle? Well, length? your mantle size is probably a bit thing. So shall we do it not in terms of total length, but perhaps in terms of mantle length? I like it. So <laughs> I, I I'll, I'll say that I reckon a um, squid of mantle length greater than two point seven five meters will be found within the next ten years. Oh well, that's preposterous. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> oh, so fun. for a bottle of Kraken rum, then I think so. I like this bet. Okay, ten years. <laughs> ten years. So hopefully, I, I, I won't. Ten have... years makes it a bit edgy. It, it kind of makes it the odds both ways. Yeah, yeah. Well, whoever wins can share it. No, no, no it's yes. all good. I, I, I would be <laughs> delighted. But I like their bottles. So uh, the bottle's fantastic, actually. It yeah, really is. Yeah. So I <laughs> nice. But I, I, I love the bottles. Love the ads. And uh, I will be delighted to get my free bottle in 10 years. Of course, I'm doing it merely because <laughs> that's ridiculous. For the science. Because <laughs> he's a contrarian. I am not. But no, no. I actually hope I'm wrong. I'd be glad to buy you a bottle. That'd be great. Uh, well, uh, you yeah. know what? The, I'm glad it, someone's taken the bet. I, I've, uh, so I'm not going to call any names, but I, I've been in uh, – I've tried very frequently to get someone to come on to talk about Krakens before, and my thought was we would do the whole episode as one on giant squid because I thought there's plenty to talk about. I'm fascinated by the fact that they have uh, blood that's high in ammonia content, right? So I was, well, what are the implications for that? Well, you know, whales eat them, so how do they deal with the ammonia when they? How does their digestive system deal with it, right? So I mean, this is interesting to me, and, and uh, uh, there, there's many things about them that I find interesting. Anyway, so but it was uh, there, that's one of my three most difficult uh, uh, episodes to get handled have been uh, giant snakes, which we finally got uh, mm-hmm. the kraken, which I'm going to call this a win on the kraken side, and then the third <laughs> one is uh, taphonomy uh, because I'm interested in um, 
cattle mutilations, and I haven't been able to find a taphonomist who would come on and talk about the death process as a natural process for. Uh, and there's so much interesting forensic sort of information there, but I just haven't been able to find the right person. I'm sure we can find someone. I, I've yeah, never. I, I've been up. wanting to do some work on that actually, because I did. I had some fun decaying a shark corpse a few years back, because uh, I wanted to see whether it would become one of these pseudo plesiosaurs. And oh, it neat. Does, okay, it yeah, does yeah. become pseudo plesiosaur. Uh, but don't do it indoors because otherwise your colleagues will tell you to take it outside. This is <laughs> all of my work with dead animals has ended up like that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm convinced just working with little sharks that you can be, they will produce pseudo plesiosaurs. Um, Interesting. And, uh, it neat. seems pretty, perfectly reasonable that a basking shark would. That was one of our uh, early I, I, episodes. I think we know that, but it was that. nice just yeah. to confirm it experimentally kind of thing. I can't think of the name of the ship now, the, but the famous uh, Maru, something Maru, because all the Japanese ships. Oh, there's Waiu yeah. Maru, yeah. yeah. And so we had on a guy named, I think, Glenn Cuban, who had done work That's on right. that and the uh, the famous dinosaur tracks with human tracks in Texas that were actually a hoax. So the, the dinosaur tracks were legit, but the human tracks were a hoax, so... <laughs> but but I do want to talk about whale penises because I mean I don't know. What I was going to leave that to you. Yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> your question. <laughs> I did. You probably one of the mo- most interesting. It's not the only time we've had uh, penises uh, being described as a possible explanation for monsters. Uh, but uh, it, strangely, it, yeah. but, but this one's more plausible than the other one. So uh, uh, so can you want to talk a little bit about how whale penises might be mistaken for a sea monster and, and specifically a sea serpent? Well, um, or is that we're yeah, doing I, it all? I, we're like giving the punchline, and then you have to fill in the joke, and that's not really. Good. Yeah. So. Uh, we had a code name for the paper when we wrote it. Actually, it was kind of Moby Dick because we thought that was a project. Oh, that's awesome! <laughs> um, I'm sad yeah, that um, I didn't think of that joke. It's that's uh, yeah, yeah. I'm disappointed. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so yeah. Well, we we were there was a team of us who were investigating this um, sighting by. Paul Eged, who was the son of the great um, uh, missionary to Greenland, Hans Eged. And while en route to going around the coastline of Greenland, they saw this animal, which they uh, which was described in various documents. And its underside was being described like a serpent and the tail, the tail and it, it, it's figured and it, it looks kind of snaky. And the weird thing is that the tail, the tail has no flukes on it, um, but there's several features of the report which suggest it probably was a whale. And so we were kind of thinking about this, and um, we thought, well, could it be a whale without flukes? And it's said to be known that grey whales off the coast of California have been seen that have had lost their flukes, and they can actually swim by turning on their sides and moving their their tails. They can they can still manage to to, to swim even though they haven't got flukes and it was actually my colleague sharon Hedley, one of my co-authors on the paper who suggested that it could actually be a whale um the tail could have been a, a whale penis um i thought about funny enough i thought about whale penises as a explanation for head and neck style sea serpent sightings but it didn't actually occur to me that the tail of the he- the egghead um the the, the egghead sighting was actually a, a whale penis but once we kind of looked at some pictures, it really seemed quite compelling as a potential 
explanation for the for the draw because because the tail is kind of drawn and it, it does kind of look like a, a big cetacean penis and um so and we you say that, that they are so if you want to talk about big penises as a lot of people do that these are really big these uh several feet yeah i mean yeah. six foot long i was gonna say six yeah. foot long and like three yeah. feet around wow. I mean, they're 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 no joke what <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if you, if you perhaps don't do this at work, but if you look up whale penis uh, <laughs> on the internet, you'll see some stunning, stunning photographs. Um, uh, I, I actually had, did have to get permission to look at them at work because obviously uh, I, wanted, I was using my u- university computer to, to to write the paper, and we wanted to find some suitable photographs. But I mean, they look absolutely monstrous, and if you and it, they aren't, you know, if you saw this thing, these things sit, sticking out of the sea, I, I don't think penis would be your first interpretation of what you've seen and we mentioned in the paper there could be other sightings um i mean there's one in particular off the coast of uh south america where some sperm whales are described unintentionally by the witness as being frantic with excitement and then one of the um sperm whales they say there's this kind of big white thing that's kind of wrapped around him and again you kind of think well maybe that was um you know, it, it, it wasn't a, a giant sea serpent, a giant sea serpent attacking a, a sperm whale, but it was a group of sperm whales getting a bit happy. Yeah, yeah, as they do, right? I mean, that's yeah. they've got to reproduce, and that's how they get their name. No, not really, but yeah. You know. <laughs> well, uh, very interesting. But, but it illustrates a really important point, actually, and, and the important point is is this: that when um, when clear people your are, browser history, that's the <laughs> <word>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's that, um, but and this is a, is that when people, by their very nature, people don't when they see something strange, they don't know what they don't know what they've seen, mm-hmm. and and lots of animals and other phenomena, in fact, they appear in ways that they don't appear in books, and until recently, we didn't really see them on TV. You, you won't have seen um, kind of whales mating on TV, and so. Many of these reports, early reports especially, less so now, but still now, um, people see things and they, because they haven't got great zoological knowledge, practical zoological knowledge, which very few people have. I wouldn't describe myself as having kind of practical experience of seeing lots of species of whale. They can see something which is unusual, but it, but it's not necessarily completely unknown. And so... They're sincere witnesses. They've seen something very, very unusual. So it's, they've seen something very, very noteworthy, but it isn't quite quite what they're interpreting. So hence, Hans Edgate, going all the way back to the 18th century, can see this strange snake-like underpart of the whale, and he's just misinterpreted what, he, what he's actually seen. But he couldn't interpret it correctly because he hasn't got the, fr- the kind of reference framework to actually do that. So one of the questions I wanted to make sure we talked about is when you're not doing monster research, what's the more mundane side of your statistics and biology work? Um, and when I say mundane, I merely just mean not tied to monsters, not to mean that it's uh, Yeah, so what I'm normally involved in is – well, I do a bit of teaching and also I'm involved in kind of estimating and modeling um, populations of whales. Um, so that's – yeah, so normally I an- analyze uh, survey – data that's been collected by people in the field and then i kind of analyze that data and i produce an estimate of the number of whales or perhaps a map of the densities of the whales that's great and how they change and stuff like that i mean without knowing those numbers it's really hard to 
figure out how to work our conservation efforts. So if I don't know if that's the main purpose, but uh, yeah, that's that's the pr- primary purpose. So these estimates typically feed into kind of conservation programs and understanding of population sizes and so on. Gotcha. So that's that's my proper job, but it actually does kind of overlap because some of the things I've done in the cryptozoological world, I've kind of based them on stuff I've kind of learned about as part of my proper job. So it's that, been quite, quite useful that way. So when, when you're doing your uh, statistical analysis, I mean, do you have particular programs you use uh, or do you do your own coding or how does that work? Um, I'm just learning about statistics myself. So I just learned that about the fact that there, what is it? I think it's called R. The Yeah, well, yeah, many... Most maybe uh, academic statisticians tend tend to use R, so I, I tend to use it for, for for my analyses. And yeah, and sometimes I write um, my own packages to programs to do things. I find the statistics side of things very interesting. I'm just ignorant of how it works, so I'm I'm trying to learn more about it. So, all right. So our final question we like to ask our guests uh, is, what is your favorite monster? Oh, it'd be a, a toss up between. All the various forms of the Kraken and the Sea Monk, I think. Uh, those were the questions that we had. And uh, you did a fantastic job of answering them. And I want to thank you again for showing up today. Uh, yeah, thank you very much. Thank you for getting in contact with us again. Yeah, no, yeah, no, no problem. I mean, because I'm producing papers all the time. So um, if you want to kind of interview me again in a little while about other kind of stuff, that's kind of Absolutely. cool. Absolutely. Ping us when you get uh, some stuff, especially the Nessie stuff. We just haven't done enough with Nessie. I, I know we've talked about lake monsters in general quite a few times, but uh, we haven't done like an in, in-depth, uh, thorough coverage. Was that another that. pun? It wasn't intentional. <laughs> so, yeah, so. <laughs> Always intentional. I mean, we did do the Plesiosaur episode. I guess that was one of our earliest episodes um, where we had on paleontologist Adam Stewart Smith. And I really loved that one because it's my elevator speech episode because we – don't think there's a plesiosaur in Loch Ness, but it's a great way to talk about plesiosaurs. Uh, it gets, <laughs> people are very interested in, in Nessie and plesiosaurs, and mm-hmm. there's a lot of great information about them. Like, I didn't know they used gastroliths. I find that fascinating. Uh, I learned a lot, and that's, you know, I know if I'm learning stuff, people are out there learning some things, too. That's nice. All right, well, thanks again for coming on. I really appreciate it, and thank you for yeah. following up with us. Uh, you know, Thank you. Yeah. No, it's been it's been really good fun. So uh, so thanks very much. All right. And uh, yeah, keep an eye out. There'll be other kind of weird weird papers coming out um, on these monstrous themes. Monster talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk. I'm Karen Stoltznow, and I'm Blake Smith. You've been listening to an interview with Dr. Charles Paxton on statistical analysis of sea monster sightings throughout history. You can find links to Dr. Paxton's papers in our show notes at monstertalk.org. We also talked about Nessie, and I hope to hear more about our guest's upcoming paper on that topic. Also, we have another famous lake monster coming up very soon, so stay tuned for that. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine, but the views you hear on this show are those of myself and my guests and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. There we have links to our Patreon pages as well as a donation button. 
A great way to support the show is to buy us books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindle, and we can share our digital library with each other. Finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please, share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Muster Talk theme music's by Peach Stealing Monkeys. And sincerely, thanks again for listening. Want to stay abreast of the latest from Skeptic Magazine and the Skeptic Society? Want cutting-edge skeptical articles delivered straight to your inbox every week? Then subscribe to eSkeptic, the free electronic newsletter of the Skeptic Society. Visit skeptic.com to sign up. Want to stay abreast of the latest from Skeptic Magazine and the Skeptic Society? Want cutting-edge skeptical articles delivered straight to your inbox every week? Then subscribe to eSkeptic, the free electronic newsletter of the Skeptic Society. Visit skeptic.com to sign up. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.